0: Chapter 10 False Tales and Eager Hearts March, 1774 Major General Agador Ivy knew the street rumors of Captain Valet going missing in the winter was not because he despised his life and wanted to escape. He went missing because he was murdered by the King's Bane. He did not know how it happened, but he knew it to be the truth. He knew a false story when he heard one. The idea that his most dedicated man would assume a new life and identity was ludicrous and held no merit. Since Agador's arrival to Boston, there have been no caravan attacks, no shipment disruptions, and little to no sign at all of the existence of the group called the King's Bane, which he figured to be odd, as they were very active in the past. He entered George's tavern alone, and his uniform stood out with the blood-red long coat and the black silk sash overtop carrying the crown's personal insignia indicating his high importance to the King's Guard and King. The eyes around the tavern, mainly British loyalists, have seen the new Major General in town, and rumors have been spreading to his purpose here in Boston. Agador has purposely been silent for security reasons after losing Captain Vala a few weeks after arriving. He planned on using the information to stir up British support against the bandits when the time was right. Uh, Good evening, sir. What can I get you? The younger barkeep asks as the Major General approaches a bar top. Holland Gin. Agador replies in his deep, cold tone. Ah, right you are, sir, the barkeep says, pouring a liquor into a glass. Rumors have it you are the Crown's cutthroats in search of the King's Bane. What do you know of the King's Bane? Agador asks inquisitively with a mean look in his ice blue eyes. Bunch of heathens, the barkeep says excitedly. What is your name? Barkeep. Ah, uh, me, ah, uh, Barrett Classius, sir. The man responds, shaken. What do you know, Barrett? The major general asks the man, trying not to lose his temper. Uh, well, there's not much to know. They are faceless devils who deserve a traitor's death. Some people in town support the savages and think they are justified. A whole mess of shit, if you ask me. Barrett says loudly, then quiets down, leans in toward Agador, and whispers. Meet me outside near the horse trough. I have information that you may want. Thank you for the gin, Agador says as he finishes his drink and walks out the front door. The springtime nights were often cold, and tonight was no exception. Agador didn't mind the cold. In fact, he mostly preferred the cold and snow over all else. The cold reminded him of London, the one thing he had a warmth in his heart for. A thin figure rounded the corner, cutting the shadows into darkness as Agador's right hand was ready to withdraw his flintlock when they revealed the barkeep, Barret from the tavern. "'What information do you carry, barkeep?' the Major General asked, purposely ignoring his name. Uh, "'The King's Bane is quite the small group of bandits. Their outfit is maybe four to eight men. I have personally seen them in action. They move like apparitions. Their musket fire gave away their positions during one of their attacks.' and when they do attack, they hit personal crown shipments or coin caravans. They try to hit the king where it hurts, his purse, the man says. Good. Your service to the crown will be rewarded with 50 shillings, the major general says, extending his hand with a coin bag. The barkeep reaches for the bag, and Agador drops it in his hand and says directly, Upon taking this coin, you are entering into my service, and you will work for me. The barkeep looks at the major general and nods. I will do whatever you ask, he says, as his loyalties lie with the crown. Adahir arrived at the quiet alley and made his way below the abandoned tavern with haste. Upon entering the great room, he noticed James Robinson sitting by the fire. Nyx was sleeping on a bed against a far wall. Shakespeare was sharpening a knife on a wet stone, and Nimish was sleeping on the bed on the opposite wall as Nyx. He makes his way to the empty chair near the fire and sits down. He removes his tobacco pouch, clay pipe, and wick ball. Why do you smoke that shit? James Robinson asks, still looking into the fire. Tastes good, relaxes my nerves, and helps me not snap from foolish questions like that, he says, smiling at James as his gaze breaks and he looks over at him. That's why I like you, he. Your audacity, James laughs and turns back to the fire. Yeah, that's why I don't like you, Adihe, Shakespeare says sarcastically in a reminiscent tone, referring to their first encounter. he laughs and reaches for the nearest candle on the table, lighting the end of the wick ball. He leans back into the chair and sparks a pipe ball, puffing until it's lit. So he, why are you here, other than Thomas being your uncle, James Robinson asks. Well, my father was hunted and killed by King George II, and my mother raised me with our tribe. Once she passed away, I headed here to find my path. I guess you could say that I'm on it, Adahie says as he releases a puff of smoke. Me condolences to your parents, Adahie. I, too, earned a rough past. My father went bankrupt in my childhood, losing his theater in London. Within months, the theater was seized by the banks, and his health issues became too much, Shakespeare says sadly, and continues. My father despised the colonies, and when he died, with nothing, I figured... It seemed a good place to start the over. That is rough, my friend, he says genuinely. Yeah, you want to hear rough? James Robinson's deep voice asks. he nods, taking another inhale from the pipe. James Robinson continues. Plantation owner? Bill Redford? He noticed a dark end of my flintlock barrel staring at him when he woke up out of his bed. I skinned the bastard and hung him outside for his family and the whole plantation to see. He finishes with the room eerily silent. The large man continues with his brutal story. For years, I was hunted by slavers and bounty hunters until Mr. Robinson came into my life. He took me in, freed me, taught me how to read and write, and showed me true compassion. I'll be forever grateful to him, James Robinson concludes. Nimish and Nix had woken up in the middle of James Robinson's story and joined the others around the fire for ale. How about you, Nimish? Add he asks a man similar in age, my father was a seaman in the British Royal Navy and was killed off at the coast of India. He always wished for me and my brothers to come to the colonies. somehow, I managed to smuggle myself here. the Michelchesley group when he finishes. Nick speaks to the king's bane in a sombre tone, Mr Robinson, We are two sides of the same coin, my friend. I know why you never mention my scar. It is the same reason no one mentions yours, James. It's too rough. She pauses, looks into the fire, and continues. My mother and I were sleeping when they came for us. I was just a young woman, not even fifteen, when they dragged us out of our home to the large oak tree near the meeting house. They put the ropes around our necks and hoisted us into the air. They cheered until they believed we were dead and left us there. The branch snapped, and I fell, breaking my leg, but surviving. Unfortunately, my mother did not. The following Sunday, I found the cultists in their church worshipping their imaginary god. While they were transfixed on their worship, I barred the front doors and torched the roof. Within minutes, their screams are all I could hear. As they tried to escape through the windows, I shot them, one by one. It was easy as they moved slow. The room fell silent in all of her brutal story. Each one of the men in the room immediately crowned her with respect if they did not already. Over 75 people were killed, she says lastly. The doors open, seemingly breaking everyone's undivided attention on Nick's. They all look over to see Thomas entering the great room, his gray beard and scar illuminated from their flickering flames. We have a mission, he says to the dismally quiet room. Ah, finally. Thank you, James Robinson says, breaking his silence, as if a weight has been lifted from his shoulders. The lobster hunt is back on, Shakespeare says, sheathing his newly sharpened blade. Thomas brings up a spare chair to the group around the fire and sits down. Alright, I know it's been a rough few months since ceasing operations, but I have received verified intelligence of a troop caravan transporting King George III's latest coin shipment, Thomas reveals. Seems too easy to be true. We haven't hit a coin caravan in over six months, Nick says and continues. Are you sure we should hit this one? The king hasn't been hit hard in a long time. I think it's time we correct that error. The caravan is leaving Cambridge four days from today and will be carrying two full wagons of coin and fur headed to Boston Harbor. We know once the caravan is inside the city, it is almost impossible to attack. We need to hit it outside the city, Thomas says. The Muddy River. We will hit the caravan as soon as they pass over the river and into the thick vegetational forest between Brookline and Boston. It's a perfect kill box, He points out as he has become familiarized with the area. Thomas, still unsure of this plan but also eager to get back to work, hesitant but wants to continue the mission. He stands up and speaks to the room full of killers and friends. We all need to agree this is what we want to do. With the new major general in town we have to be cautious and I just want to make sure we don't misstep and get caught off guard. I want to get back to work, James Robinson says, followed by Nix's voice. I'm on board. Thomas looks at Atahe and Shakespeare speaks. Me too. Me too. Nemesh says lastly. That settles it, then. We ambush this caravan and utilize the muddy river as our escape, Thomas says, looking at his king's bane compatriots. Let's get the bastards. The smoothly sounding words leave his mouth and fill the battle-starved room.